0: In a minute, I want to drop you down into an Iroquois village and give you a little bit of a sensory experience of what it would have been like to be in a Haudenosaunee village right before the time that the Europeans would have showed up. But first, I want to talk about clans for a little bit. So we've talked about tribes, the Haudenosaunee, the Confederacy, but inside of those tribes were clans. And those clans are the real source of the power for the women in the Haudenosaunee culture. So the women are going to be in charge of things going on in the village, in the dwellings. And if you're born to a woman who is part of the turtle clan, you're in the turtle clan. Let's say you're a a young man and then you have a wife who's in a turtle clan, let's say. Their kids belong into the turtle clan. You, because you're not going to marry within your own clan, that would be incestuous, considered incestuous, your own children would not be part of your clan. All right, so there's a lot of power here for the women in the community. There are a number of clans that we see among the Haudenosaunee, the wolf, the bear, the beaver, the turtle, the deer, the snipe, the heron, the hawk, the Mohawk tribe, who don't call themselves Mohawk, they call themselves people of the Flint because they live near really great Flint reserves. They had at some point just the bear, the wolf, and the turtle clan, and I'm not sure if that grew or shrank throughout time, but there was a point in time where they had three clans. Some people believe that the bear and the deer were the original clans, and the rest kind of descended and sprung off from there. At other points in uh, Iroquois history, it appears that there are two sides to the clans. So there's, there's certain clans that are of closer relation to the other sides, and they complement one, one another. The sides would be the wolf, the bear, and the beaver, and the turtle on one side, the deer, the snipe, the heron, and the hawk on the other side. Something that kept the Haudenosaunee together is if you are a part of the bear clan and you're in the Mohawk, and there's somebody who's part of the Bear Clan and then the Oneidas, you are brothers and sisters to one another. Even though you're a different tribe and have a slightly different way of talking, slightly different accent, slightly different language, you are brothers and sisters. So not only are the tribes confederated to one another, inside of the tribes, the individual clans are connected to one another. So you end up with this webbing, this this webbing of ties and connections that really hold these groups together. So you might meet someone you don't even know, but they're part of your clan. They are your brother or sister. And you had certain obligations to people within your clan, even more so than people who were just in your tribe. And those obligations and expectations depended on your gender. And we're going to get into that because the Iroquois culture appears to be divided along gender lines quite distinctly. So we're going to see that there's certain roles that women had, certain roles that men had. So the study of gender roles that goes all throughout history and every culture, and we're going to look at that. And this is going to be a time, I know we live in an age now where the idea of gender is, is kind of up in the air, debatable and fluid. But at this time, it wasn't quite so much. So we have to take our modern hats off and just go back in time and just just give yourself a little room to consider that things were different back then. Because we're going to jump right back in time right now. All right, so just to give you a little ambiance, I'm going to add a little background noise This is uh, courtesy of Sword Coast Soundscapes. You can find them on YouTube. I'm choosing to do the small marketplace ambiance. So this won't be completely historically accurate. I've noticed a lot of, like, hard-soled shoes in the background, which you you wouldn't hear in a uh, Native American village that we're going to. But just to give you the sound of people around you and the space, I want you to feel a little crowded in, and I want you to feel like you're inside of one of these villages. So it's just for the feel. It's not accurate, and I know that, so lay off me. Let's introduce you to the Iroquois world. Let's say you're born a baby girl or a baby boy. In the clan system, if you're born a girl, you are slightly more valued because you are going to create more people for your own clan. If you're a young boy, while you're going to grow up, you're going to get married, and then your children will be part of another clan. They'll be part of the mother's clan. So a young girl is a more valuable baby. You're going to live in a longhouse... And there's going to be other members of your immediate family there. And then in other sections, other members of your clan. A longhouse was typically one clan. So next door in the next apartment, essentially, might be your cousins or second cousins. Somebody in your clan. And the entryway and the exitway for the longhouses would be on both ends. And this is why when we talk about the Haudenosaunee, the people of the longhouse, they are one metaphorical longhouse. With the Seneca guarding the western door, and the Mohawk guarding the eastern door. Longhouses varied in sizes. Sometimes you'd have two families in a long house with a central fire in the middle, and then sometimes you'd have ten families in there. Now, how did your family come together? How did your mother and your father meet? Well, in the Iroquois tradition, you could marry who you wanted, basically, more or less. There are some rules, unlike in many of the European cultures at the time, where our marriages are going to be arranged. And in different parts of the world today, marriages are still arranged. At this time, it was kind of a 50-50 split. So what would typically happen is that you would show interest in somebody else and they would show interest in you and then what would happen is both of your mothers would get together and they would decide, is this a good fit? Does this work out together? First of all, you can't be part of the same clan because you're basically considered part of the same family. And the mothers would debate and they'd go back and forth and they'd go, yeah, you know what? our kids would make a good fit together, and then they would lend you their approval. Now, this is where moms are in charge. Fathers do not have a say in this because you are not part of your father's clan. Your mother is the parent. Not to say that fathers weren't fathers, but when push comes to shove, mom's going to get her way. And to begin the marriage process, the young man and the young woman must prove that they're, they're productive. And so the young woman would make a... Uh, a unleavened cornbread because they don't have any leavening at the time so a flat cornbread and bring it to the mother-in-law's house where the son lives, the the future husband and this would be a gift and it would prove, hey look, I can grow corn I can cultivate corn, I can cook corn I can be productive and while that's going on, the young man would go out and hunt some game, hunt something and then bring whatever he hunted to the mother-in-law house of, of the bride and say, hey look, I can provide, I can hunt, I can bring things in. And so both people would have to prove to their respective mother-in-laws, or future mother-in-laws, that hey, I can do things for you, I can do things for the family, I can support your child. And if these gifts are accepted, the marriage is complete, you now have a married couple. The longhouse that they would live in would be owned by the wife, it's part of the wife's clan. So it would at least be held in trust by the clan, or that section would be controlled by the wife completely. It is the wife's world, especially inside of the village. So the husband, when they have children together, the husband is a father, but at the end of the day, the mother is in charge, because those kids belong to part of the clan. That being said, the possessions that the two of them had were separate. The father had his possessions, the mother has her possessions. There isn't this idea of shared objects. Obviously, they would share with each other, but they have a very modern concept of this is my stuff, this is your stuff. And they would share and get along together in that way. Contrast this to a lot of European cultures, not so much the Dutch culture, which we'll get to, but the English. In many cases, it would be the husband who owns everything, absolutely. This is not the case. There's a uh, quote here I found in the Jesuit relations where a, I believe a Huron or perhaps a Haudenosaunee woman, I forgot to write it down, says, I am my own mistress. You do what you choose, and I do what I choose. And she's talking to her husband there. So basically, the women maintained their independence. Additionally, fathers were expected to provide for the families, and they were expected to help the clan, the overall clan, of their wives and of their children, obviously. So there's another interconnection there. So you have a tribal, you have an intertribal with the five nations, you have the clans that are overlapping between them, you have this marriage between two different clans, and the fact that the fathers are expected to help the, the mother's clan. Now, there are some restrictions that only apply to women. For one thing, only a woman in this culture and many cultures at this time and before could commit adultery. Now, this might be a a weird idea, or it might seem bizarre to um, the listener here, but before the modern era, when we have paternity tests, DNA tests, ancestry DNA, you know, all that kind of stuff, you couldn't be certain 100% that that little baby girl or boy belonged to that father. You can't know 100% that that father was really the child's father. You can't know that. You can be pretty trusting and pretty sure and know that the mother was a uh, a person who lived up to her oaths and whatnot, but you can't be 100% certain. But you can be certain that that child came from that mother because they physically came out of that mother. And that's why we see a lot of cultures where clan systems are linked through the women, or leadership roles leak through the women. Because Let's say you're a king, and this this has happened in, in the past, in the old world. Let's say you're a king. You can't be 100% certain that your son is your son. You just can't. You didn't follow mom around the entire time. You can't be exactly 100% certain. But you do know that your sister's son is your nephew. You do know that for a fact because you both came out of the same person. Okay? It's a little filthy if you think about it, but that's a certainty that they had. So let's say your mom and dad, let's say they're... They're not getting along so well. We're getting to the point where there might need to be some separation involved. It was the responsibilities of their mothers to counsel them. So these mothers would serve as a wiser, older figure. They were both mother-in-law and counselor, therapist, negotiator, lawyer. They were really filling tons of roles that we would give to individual people today. They were responsible for the counseling But if it actually ended up that, you know, these two, they're just not getting along, a divorce could be permitted. And then as soon as the mother-in-laws agreed to it, those two people would be divorced. Now, typically, they encouraged, you know, the kids to work it out and basically not to get divorced, but sometimes it happened. So fathers, as it is, have no choice in the marriage of their children. That's clearly up to the mother. Now, let's say a couple divorced. Now, what is a father's rights to their children? Basically, none. It really depends on what the mom wants. If the mom wants you to interact with your father, so be it. If she doesn't want you to interact with your father, it doesn't happen. The father is guaranteed no automatic rights to the children. Those children belong to a woman who you divorced and broke links with and to a clan that you are not part of. So they're your children biologically, but you don't have any sort of legal right at the time to control them. Let's say there's some farmland up for dispute in this uh, divorce Well, unless the land came from the father's clan before the marriage, it's going to the mom, it's going to the wife, and it's going to go to the kids. The father, again, has no rights to this land. Let's say that your parents didn't get divorced, and you you grow up, and you you become a young man or woman, and your parents grow elderly, and one of them passes away, or both of them passes away. How does inheritance work? Again, because of the issue of we can't 100% determine paternity, Sons don't always inherit from the father. Now a father can, maybe on his deathbed, give away things specifically to his son, but typically everything stays in the clan. So any weapons you may have had or furs would pass not to your son or daughter, but to your nephews and nieces, brothers and sisters, parents if they're still around. Someone in your clan. Now let's look at leadership roles. Suppose that a, uh, a man was a chief or a sachem even. Where does that pass? Where do those titles go to, right? Now, they would have to stay in the clan. So a son of a sachem will not get the title of that sachem-ship. He might get a sachem from his uncle on his mother's side, but he will not become a chief or a sachem from his father. Now, before I get into all the government and stuff like that, let's, let's leave the family unit behind. We're going to go outside of the longhouse for a little bit. We're in the village. You can hear the sounds of people walking around. Now, the women of... A clan could count on the men of the clan to do certain things like clearing fields the big stumps and rocks and doing all this grunt work clearing fields for cultivation whereas the women would typically be the ones doing the actual farm work as far as once the land is cleared and ready to go now the women could also count on the men within their clan to avenge crimes to be part of a criminal justice system if you were a woman in the turtle clan The men in the turtle clan would essentially be the police force that you would go to if you had an issue. And now the women, they're responsible for growing the food, cultivating the food, in many cases cooking the food, and pretty much everything else going on in the village. And now at this time, we typically think of Native Americans as doing a lot of hunting, and the men will do a lot of hunting. But when it comes to really the calories, where is the, the bulk of the food coming from? It's going to be from plants that the women grow. So the women are responsible for feeding the men and the the children and the elderly. The women are really keeping everything going. And then the men on the other side, in addition to clearing fields, they're going to be the ones building things. Okay, they're going to make the big palisade walls. The longhouses, both genders, will take uh, turns helping each other with that. And then sometimes the men would be cutting wood, things like that. The real grunt work, like I said. The textiles, like the pottery and the clothing and all that sort of really fine work where you need to be really good with your hands to do. That's all going to be done typically by the women. And so, like I mentioned in the last episode, sometimes there'd be a Iroquois village up near the St. Lawrence that disappears. And then the pottery styles from that village just show up in a Mohawk village right around the same time. Well, those would be female captives or female refugees who have found their way to a village that accepted them. Some early reports from um, anthropologists in the 19th century suggest that the men, when it came time for a meal, the men would typically eat first, and the women and children second. But that nobody would really go hungry because food was kind of held in common with, the, with your clan, and to a wider aspect, the village. So they would have stores of food tucked away, and we're, we're going to talk about that in a little bit. So in general, the women are in charge of inside the village. And the men are in charge of outside the village. So the defense, the foreign relations, the trading. Women are in charge of basically running the show, everything going on inside of your life. And while we have this this other class of people, and this is kind of a difficult subject to talk about, because again, we're going back hundreds of years. What about men who weren't warriors, didn't want to hunt, or couldn't hunt? They didn't want to hunt. They didn't want to fight. They didn't want to be the what a man was in an Iroquois village at the time. So I have several sources that talk about this class of people and they're often referred to as effeminate men, okay? Now, this isn't referring necessarily to their sexuality. This is simply what are they doing for the village, okay? Are they fulfilling the male gender roles of hunting and gathering and protecting and being, you know, a warrior and trading to the outside world? Or are they fulfilling the female roles? So there was, there seems to be evidence that there was a class of men who did what the women did. They chose to do farm work and things that we've already described as being typical of women and based on the sources that i've seen here they were not accepted as equals to the men or the women they were kind of a second class an underclass similar to the captives that we'll learn about later at first anyway and they occupied another tier they did not fit into what was typically expected of iroquois people and so they were kind of like second class citizens so this seems to be the reality of it, and I know I'm going to get some heat for for just saying this, but this is based on the sources that I've seen. There is this underclass of people who do not fit the gender roles for the time. Once again, this would be circa 1600. And if you look at the European examples of what's going on with these kinds of things at the time, they're, you know, these types of people are going to be treated just as badly, if not worse. So it's a different time. And now the elderly, they would be given... Less uh, hard tasks. Uh, older men and women. An older man wouldn't be expected to go out and hunt, especially if he had bad eyes and bad knees and everything else. Same thing with older women. They're not going to do the tough farm work anymore. They're going to be doing smaller tasks. Things like making little, little bits of pottery and, and uh, carving out pipes and stuff that can be done while sitting, basically. And so they they were actually very kind to their elderly and considered them very wise. And they were the source of the stories and the history. So they were very highly valued and taken care of. And so with this kind of communal ownership where the land was kind of owned by your clan and your tribe. And it really wasn't terribly defined. There wasn't a lot of wealth inequality. So this is an important point to make. If you found the richest Iroquois in a village and the poorest, you wouldn't notice that large of a gap or difference. Because there was a lot of sharing. A lot of things were held in common. And there just wasn't like a storehouse of gold coins somewhere or bank accounts. So the things that you had, you would share. Or you would get a certain amount of things and you would just run out of space in the longhouse to put it. You didn't stockpile possessions. So you're living in a world where rich and poor might not even have much of a meaning. Uh, A better term would be, are you hungry or unhungry? That would be a a real dividing line in the uh, native general native american world at the time are you fed are you warm or do you need something but there are no rich and poor there are the uh, people who are held in high esteem and have leadership roles based on their charisma and the things that they have accomplished and then those who are held in less esteem so there would be you know popular people unpopular people there'd be trustworthy people untrustworthy people but you're not going to see people living in a long house mansion and then people living in a long house shack that generally is not going to occur to that degree. So there's very little wealth inequality. So on that subject of wealth, let's, let's move on to trade. Let's say you're, you're standing in your village and there are people from another village coming towards you and they have goods to trade. Well, before the Europeans showed up, there's a real debate over what the exact role of wampum was, or suent, as the Dutch will call it. Like, we've seen wampum belts and we know that they're used as a mnemonic device to communicate certain ideas or treaties. But before the Europeans showed up, wampum doesn't seem to be as prevalent as afterwards. And part of the reason for that is, well, the Haudenosaunee are very far inland. They're, they're landlocked, essentially. And where the sources of this wampum would come from would be, like, Long Island or way out in what is modern-day Massachusetts. And the Iroquois have an on-again, off-again relationship with the Algonquin people over there. So there was suant, there was wampum, and it seemed to have been used in jewelry a lot, and that kind of thing. But its real function seemed to develop later. And we'll get into that at some other time. But at this time, so what, what would be a small thing of value that you could carry around and trade village to village? One of the things, other than the food, and generally you don't need to trade furs because everyone's hunting, other than the food, is there's evidence of copper spirals. A little bit of natural copper that they find in the ground. They didn't really know how to work metal yet. But they would find copper, because copper grows in veins, unlike iron. And you could just find it, and it's shiny, and it's interesting. It's so a little decorative copper spirals were found. And I believe the archaeologist who kind of pointed this out, at least in my research, was James Bradley. So he's, he's done a lot of great research on the, um, the native sites in the area. And so these little copper spirals, they would work as kind of a, a, a very small thing you could carry around. Similar to the idea of a coin. It's valuable, it's shiny, people want it, and it's light, and you could take it with you. Little copper spirals. And then later on, wampum seems to have taken over that role in some respects, and wampum has many roles. So at this time, you'd be likely to find wampum, you know, those little circular rods with the holes in the middle, or even a little disc that you'd wear around a necklace, a whole bunch of them. Typically, the role of wampum was filled by, what I found in my research, little wooden objects. So instead of it made out of a shell from an ocean you know crustacean of some sort it was made out of a small little wooden object that may have been painted but that's a very debatable thing so these people coming to your village they're trading little copper spirals perhaps or maybe they have little pieces of wooden wampum or maybe some real wampum made out of shell and they're they're probably trading food that's often a big thing now flint ...because you're going to use flint for a lot of things. That is going to be a major trade commodity. It's, it is heavy because it's a rock, but it's valuable. And you can make arrowheads and knives and axes. And you can start fires with flint, right? You can get a little spark from that. So very valuable commodity would be flint. And in fact, the, the Mohawk call themselves the, the people of the flint. They lived near some great flint reserves at the time. The traders you're trading with and yourself... If you don't speak the same language, there is a general Native American sign language to get yourself between different linguistic groups. You could trade with the Mohegan if you're a Mohawk. You'll have a general way of communicating with each other. You'll probably know each other's terms for different goods, and you'll have different hand signals to help you facilitate that trade. And although you might think of the Mohegan and the Mohawk as being enemies, according to the Mohegan, there's a very early source that says that they used to be friends. The Mohawk and the Mohegan were at one time friends, and I'm sure that went on again and off again so if you look down at the trader's feet they're probably wearing moccasins and what's the guy's name edmund s morgan he wrote a great book on the iroquois he says that moccasins are excellent footwear i've worn them myself and that they excelled all other footwear at the time even the ones that the europeans would have had or the chinese would have had that moccasins are just fantastic and i have to agree with him. So they come walking up with their moccasins. Those little copper spirals, it's believed by some that they would have thought to have been the tail of the underwater panther from Iroquois uh, beliefs and mythologies and stories. And then mica, if you guys have ever seen a a piece of mica. Mica used to be around a lot, but then the thing about mica is it's it's crystally, right? It looks like quartz, but it's in sheets and layers, and kids like to just peel it back. It peels off really easily, and it's real satisfying. Mica might be traded as, as a powerful thing. And it was thought that the mica was scales from the great horned serpent in uh, Iroquois mythology and beliefs. Now, it's important to understand that you and this trader here, you're not just, I'm going to give you something, you're going to give me something else, and we're going to head out. Trading served a different function among Native American groups than we would associate with how we buy and sell things today or how you, the Europeans will come in and, and try to buy and sell things. And there's going to be some confusion there. Basically, if I'm trading with you, I'm either setting up or reaffirming a relationship. Okay? I'm not just trading something with you and you're trading something with me. I'm confirming that I'm your friend, I'm your ally, and vice versa. And so we're going to see a lot of times where uh, the Iroquois are not trading with a certain other native group. And that's a signal to them that this group is not just not trading with us, they're not our ally. That's how that works. And so by trading with somebody, you're saying, I accept you, I will help you. There's a connection between us, a link, a bond. And we're going to see that language show up a lot when we talk about the Haudenosaunee. Because it trickles all the way up through their political structure. And it really helps explain quite a bit about them. Now, where do I want to go? I think I want to go out on a hunt. So let's say we're with a, uh, a band of young men and we're going to go out and we're going to go hunting. I'm going to change the uh, soundscape here to be more, more nature. So I'm going to use the same source as I did before. And we're going to use one called Forest Daytime. So we're going to hear the sounds of the forest. You with your hunting band, you're leaving the village... You're probably part of the same clan. You're going out in the woods and you're going to look for some game out there. Now, this is where we start bringing in a little bit of religion. So the animals of the forest, they're kind of controlled by these magical beings, essentially. These small creatures that Europeans would have called like elves or dwarves and they're, they're hard to see and they hide in the woods. And they're the keepers of the game. They can determine whether or not you have a good hunt or a bad hunt. So if you appease these nature spirits... You can either have the game just come right to you, or you can anger them, you can disrespect them in some way, and you won't find anything. It'll be a complete waste of time, and you'll go hungry. Now, the number one plant that the Native Americans across the continent would use to communicate with any sort of spirit would be tobacco, burning tobacco. Now, there's different ways you could do it. You could just burn tobacco and just send the smoke up, and then put your message into it, your song into it. Or you could do what's called smudging, where you have tobacco rolled up, and you light it on fire, and you kind of push the smoke onto you and rub it upon your skin, and it's it's quite elaborate, and it changes depending on Native American cultures and even tribe to tribe, person to person, so I, I'm not going to really speculate on what the correct way to do it is. But with the tobacco smoke, you're going to be able to convene with these nature spirits, and you're going to be telling the keepers of the game, you know, this I'm giving this to you, I'm a good person, please allow me to have a good hunt. Now the word for hunting that I found... From some sources in the Iroquois languages it translates to something as simple as let's go and get it it's literally like hey let's go it's like the beginning of a football game or something we're going out there let's go and get it so that was their term for hunting so they would do their ceremony and then they would go let's go and get it and they would go out into the woods now hunting was just not indiscriminate they would hunt certain animals and during certain points of the year they wouldn't hunt females if they could tell the difference Because they knew that the females would create more animals in the future. So leave the females, because really, if there's one male out there, he'll get around to it. So they were very smart, and they they practiced uh, hunting techniques that were similar to how we get hunting done today, all right? So there's certain populations of animals that we just don't touch at certain times. And they knew that. They already had that in their head. And so they always had a sustainable supply, typically unless there was some disaster or something, and overhunting by other tribes coming in, or just a boom in population, they could always count on game being there in general. And these hunting parties, they loved hunting, they'd be gone for a long time sometimes, and there's reports of Iroquois hunting parties up up in what's modern day Canada, all the way down in Ohio, and sometimes way down in the Chesapeake, where Jamestown is going to be founded in a couple of years from our scenario here, before the Europeans show up. Uh, they would use a lot of different techniques for catching animals, they would just flat out hunt them and they would have wonderful bows and arrows and spears to do that kind of stuff but they would also have ways of working together as a team and having sometimes uh things that made sounds to spook animals in certain directions and in the woods sometimes they would construct palisades large walls or bushes to trap animals or to narrow them into a v so you can imagine a long v laid out on the ground the animal goes into the wide opening and they get trapped at the end Now, the the animals that you hear about them hunting a lot is, of course, beaver for the the beaver fur trade. Well, that's going to come with the Europeans. But bears, the the grease from the bear had a lot of uses, which I think we'll talk about in probably some later episode. But mostly deer. Deer is typically where a lot of those meat calories are going to come from because there's a lot of deer, and that's just the game in the area. So bear and deer, and then they would make little nets to capture birds. They would also use nets for fishing. Sometimes they'd use nets with rocks to kind of hold it down. They would also use harpoons with a little single barb on it to spear a fish, which is very hard to do, by the way. It's very hard because of the water. It, you know, the fish isn't exactly where it looks like it is because of the refraction, I believe it's called. And then some Native Americans could even bow and an arrowfish, uh, the Haudenosaunee especially. And some of the Iroquois would make uh, fish weirs, which would be like a rock structure in a creek or stream or a slow-moving river where the fish could go inside and then kind of get twisted around like a maze and not make their way out. Typically, the hunter who who killed the animal would get the uh, right to the skin, whereas the meat would be shared with the whole hunting party. Typically, the hide, the, the prize, essentially, would go to the one who actually did the hunting. And if we're back in our Iroquois village and we're looking around, people are generally covering themselves with the hides of animals. That's clothes for the time and shoes. Now, let's move over to the farming. Alright, so you're not a young man anymore out on the hunt, you're a young woman out working on the farms. And I think we can use the same sound for it, because you go out into a farm, it it sounds like nature. Okay, so if you're out on the farms, typically it's going to be the women doing the actual sowing of the seeds and all the work involved. If you remember in elementary school, they probably taught you about the three sisters, corns, beans, and squash. So a big part of the Iroquois diet, and a lot of the diet for the other people in the area, is going to be the three sisters. Corns, corns, corn beans, and squash. If you eat these kinds of things every day, I mean, the the nutritional value is there. You pretty much get a a wide spectrum of all the vitamins and minerals you need just from those three things. And you supplement it with some wild game, you have a pretty healthy diet there. So these things would be planted right on top of one another. So the corn stalk would go straight up, and the squash would grow on the ground, and then the bean stalk would kind of grow around the corn stalk. And so all three crops exist in the same spot. So, once the Europeans show up, if you wanted to tell the difference between a farm uh, that was owned by, let's say, the Dutch and a farm that was owned by the Haudenosaunee, well the Haudenosaunee, uh farm fields would have three crops growing right there. And they grew other things too, but the crops would be growing in connection with one another. Whereas the Dutch and most Europeans would separate their crops. There'd be separate fields for separate things. So you're a farmer out there, you're a young woman, there's evidence that you would have practiced crop rotation. You would have let fields rest. If they were over-farmed and non-productive, you would recognize that, and you would know to just let it kind of regrow and rest for a while, recharge. And you would also practice slash-and-burn agriculture. Basically, if you wanted a new chunk of land to build a farm on, you could just burn everything down, and then the ashes would actually be like a fertilizer. It was a lot faster than just, you know, chopping up all the trees with stone axes and digging up the roots you know, just by hand, it would be ridiculous. Burn it all down and now you have a field and now you have fertilizer. It's what's called slash-and-burn agriculture. And a lot of other native groups practice this. Now, if you were back in your longhouse, you would see corn hanging from the walls and from the ceiling. Lots of corn. There's corn everywhere. And the stuff held up high, it dries out nice. That's your seed corn, a lot of that. That's the corn you're going to use to replant your fields in the spring. So let's say you have all your food from the men, from the women, you're back into the village, let's say you're uh, getting ready for a meal. So you'd have the meat. That, of course, was captured. We talked about that. A lot of a lot of deer mostly. And then there would be various types of corn, because corn is going to be the backbone of the diet here. Cracked corn, hominy corn, things like, like grits. There's going to be corn bread, unleavened, of course, to mix with your venison. They would pick wild fruits, too, if they had time. There'd be ground nuts that they would find if they had time. And then you mix that in with the beans and the squash. So you had, you had a, quite a diet, considering all your food is Pretty much made within 10 miles of you. And if there were strangers in the village, you were expected to feed them. I've uh, seen reports, and we'll talk about those later, where a young Dutch man will just show up in a Native American village and they just start shoving food in his face because it's the polite thing to do. Feed your people and feed the people who are in your village in your charge. So what were people drinking? That's an important thing I don't think people consider very often. Well, water, of course. And then meat broth, like a warm soup. They had various types of oils that they would collect and keep. They would make tea from different plants they found, like sassafras. And they had maple sap, kind of the precursor to maple syrup, just a little wetter mix right from the tree. And they would mix dried fruit together with water, and they'd have different types of little fruit drinks, things like that. So th- there was there was a considerable amount of variety, especially for drinks. No alcohol. There There is... Some evidence of alcohol consumption in South America, but among the Haudenosaunee, there's no alcohol yet, as far as I can find. Maybe you found something else, but if you're in your little village right now, you're all drinking different sorts of drinks, eating all sorts of food like I listed, you're having a good meal, and there's no booze. So other than breakfast, there isn't any evidence that there were regular meals. There wasn't like breakfast, lunch, dinner. There was breakfast and then people kind of went about their way and they ate when they were hungry. The exception being during festivals and specific ceremonies where it was part of the custom. But in your general day, you're going to eat when you get around to it. So there's no rules of when dinner's coming. So the Shone, they found really creative ways to store food which is important. What if you have a year with really bad weather or there's warfare and your crops get burned down or stolen? There's going to be some way to store the food so that you can get to it if you really need it if there's a real emergency oil was collected in little boxes made out of birch and the oil would be used for a lot of things the mohawk would use it to get that mohawk going they would rub it on their skin often and that would keep away things like lice so whereas the Europeans were shaving their heads and wearing those ridiculous white wigs uh, certain Native American groups were just covering themselves in bear grease and things like that bear oil just to keep the lice off of them, because that was a real problem all around the world before the modern era, sorry to tell you. Let's say after the harvest is done, you're a young man or woman, and you're helping mom store away the food, you would pack corn into bark boxes, bury them deep into the earth, or put them high up into trees, just to try to keep the moisture away and all sorts of things that can grow and eat away the food. Vegetables you would also bury in the ground if you had extra vegetables. So if you didn't eat it, and you didn't trade it away, and you didn't give it away, you would try to store it deep in the ground as much as you could. Another thing that you could do is that you could smash meat and fish, and you could hang it into dried out bundles in longhouses. It'd be something like jerky, pretty much. We would call it jerky today. Jerky is delicious. Some other things you could do is you could dry out the corn, smash it down into like a flour, and that flour would sometimes be cooked for a while, probably to remove more of the moisture or change its chemical composition, and then that would be buried deep into the earth. Let's say you're going out traveling, well, what, what the women could make would be a kind of like an energy bar, like a Lembus bread from uh, Lord of the Rings. So you'd have corn, and you could dry it out, make that flour, and then you'd mix it with maple sugar, and you'd mix it with any little bits of fruit and whatnot, and make like this really nice energy bar. And that's what you would be taking with you on a travel or on a hunt. So on a hunt, you think, well, you're going to be eating game. Well, until you find that game, you're going to be eating this kind of Lembus bread stuff. It sounds really delicious, actually. I'm actually getting hungry doing all this food stuff, so I'm probably going to go eat in a minute. So that jerky that they made, that venison that would be cured over a fire, they could bury that deep into the ground in skins. And so depending on the groundwater and whatnot, these stores could be there for a very long time, years we're talking. And let's say you're having a conversation with someone while you're eating, you're at this meal, you're in the middle of your village here. Like, if you talked about something in the past, how would you compute time? They don't have a calendar hanging on the, the wall of the longhouse. Well, the Iroquois seem to have used two ways of kind of remembering time. They both used a lunar cycle, so the stereotype of people referring to the past in terms of moons. This happened three moons ago, or this happened during the last new moon, or something like that. And then they also seem to have a sense of the solar year, of the four seasons passing, and that's one cycle. Now, the reason why they would use both is because you have two very different lifestyles. You have the men, who are out there hunting and gathering, and they're up at night looking at the moon and the cycles of the moon, and that's how they're kind of remembering how long they've been gone, or just kind of remembering the recent history. So moons would be the system of time that the men would kind of understand, the cycle of the moon. Meanwhile, for women who are doing all the farm work, they're very conscious of the year. They need to know exactly when to plant, exactly when to pick. So the food doesn't spoil, the plants come up on time, you don't plant too early and the, and the crops all freeze. So women would typically probably use that solar calendar, they would have an idea of the seasons, and men would go by the moons. And both systems existed interchangeably, and they kind of still do in the way we use calendars today. If you think about it, a month is roughly the length of the cycle of the moon, and then of course an entire year is close to a solar year, with a little bit of a difference which we correct sometimes. So they're pretty consistent with what we do today. And over the course of this year, they would have many different festivals, usually to celebrate the changing of seasons and what came in and went out with that. They have a maple festival when the sap started to come in, a planting festival, a strawberry festival when the strawberries were ready, the green corn festival, very important one, when the corn was, was ready to be harvested. They'd have a separate harvest festival. They'd have a, some, some semblance of a New Year's festival. And in some uh, records, it was shown that they would sacrifice a white dog during it. And this would all be dedicated in worship of the great spirit... And the other spirits out there that can control the lives of the people living down on the ground. Again, they would burn tobacco and they would practice smudging with the tobacco... In order to communicate with these spirits. And they would do dances. And the dancing and the singing was done communally at these festivals... And they were meant as a sort of prayer in a way. This is how this culture would have prayed... Whereas Europeans would have put their hands together and would have been very quiet and inside of themselves the Native Americans would have put out tobacco smoke and sang into the smoke and sent those messages up and out. It's a big reason why people like the Jesuits who came down from New France would not be a big fan of Native Americans singing because they associated it with prayer and with communion with these spirits that they considered to be demons or Satan himself. The really cool thing about these Hondunashoni holidays and basically all Native American holidays is that they're very present. So a lot of the holidays we celebrate today, like Christmas... It celebrates an event that happened, you know, 2000 years ago, or we celebrate Thanksgiving and we connect it to the early separatists who landed at Plymouth Rock. And we call them, you know, we call them pilgrims and they didn't actually land on Plymouth Rock. But that's a matter for a different podcast. So we celebrate things that happened in the past. We do it in remembrance. Native American holidays are in the present. They're celebrating right now. They're living in that moment. They're celebrating whatever nature has thrown at them at that time. It's really a kind of an energizing feeling. There's dancing and there's singing and the thing that you're celebrating is right now. And you're living in that moment and you're just part of nature and you're one with the spirit world and everything is connected and you're with your family and your whole tribe and maybe visitors from other tribes. It's really just a nice feeling of just being connected to everything around you. There's very few holidays we celebrate today that I can think of that are present. Maybe Halloween? That's That might be the closest we even come to that kind of connection, that kind of celebration of reality. And there's almost nothing realistic about Halloween, so I, I don't know if we have anything like this. Maybe New Year's. New Year's you get together, everyone's happy, and you're celebrating that that exact moment the second we switch over to a New Year. So imagine six times a year having a New Year, something that exciting, being in Their version of Times Square a thousand years ago, and having this great moment happening, this great period of time, a couple of days, and having this wonderful festival and being in that moment. That must have been really exciting. Some of these ceremonies would be led by what they called keepers of the faith. These people who would belong to a religious order of sorts that would cater to a particular spirit, or number of spirits, or type of spirits. And then there is this sense of a great spirit, some sort of God above the gods, or spirit above the spirits. And there's been a lot of debate of whether or not this arose once Christian ideas were influenced into Native American culture, or whether this existed beforehand, whether there was already this sense of what used to be called a primitive monotheism, the sense that there was a great creator God, even though there's mixed in with all these other spirits and godlike creatures. In the 19th century, early anthropologists, they would refer to this great spirit as the early sensing of the true monotheistic god. And, of course, we know that's that's thinking way beyond what it, what is actually going on. You're, that's looking at it from your own culture and then projecting it onto them. In addition to there being good religious figures, there were also bad religious figures. What we would basically call witches or warlocks of sorts. That would be the English term for them. But if we can think back to the last episode where we heard about the Onondaga chief, who used some secret magical power to kill all three of Hiawatha's daughters, that would have been a bad witch. That would have been some sort of darker magic going on there. These witches were thought to commune with the dark spirits. Perhaps the uh, twin brother in our first episode, the evil twin, or one of the things that evil twin created. And these types of witches, they've been accused of turning into certain animals. Similar to like a warlock idea or a vampire idea that these evil spirits communing with evil people could actually help them turn into beasts. A not uncommon belief in Europe at the same time that this stuff is going on. And so one of these witches could commune with a spirit and make somebody sick or give them some sort of bad luck. And there were other evil spirits out there. My sources say there were these creatures called the false faces. These floating heads that were so hideous and ugly and they lurked in the dark of the woods. And if you saw one, you would just become paralyzed with fear and disgust and they could cause plagues and famine and all sorts of terrible things that seemingly came out of nowhere you would say they probably came from one of these false faces or a witch or an evil spirit or some combination of all these things just weighing down on you if you're an Iroquois and you were really worried about one of these spirits you can go to one of the keepers of the faith or do your own ceremony and send up a message to the thunderer Alright, the power of the clouds and thunder mixed together and there was this spirit of the sky. And that person, that spirit, that being was responsible more than other spirits that we've heard about for punishing the evil spirits and the evil people and the evil witches and the evil creatures that are lurking in the woods. So there were spirits out there that could protect you if you could curry their favor. And you as a human being, you're kind of in the middle of this good versus evil world. Many accounts kind of put the human being as neutral and having to choose between taking a good path or a bad path, an evil path. It's up to the Iroquois person to decide which way they can go. They have free will in Iroquois culture. The things you wanted and the things you dreamed of were your own. In fact, dreams were taken quite seriously by the Haudenosaunee. Similar how we uh, interpret dreams today as being like unconscious desires. Dreams to the Haudenosaunee, before European contact, were seen as unconscious desires in many cases, or predictions. So in the dream, if you went hunting and you had a successful hunt, that would tell you that maybe I should go out on a hunt. Or maybe I want to go out on a hunt. And so dreams, in many cases, inspired young men and women of the Haudenosaunee to go out and explore the world and go out and do things. And then older members to make very important decisions. Dreams were as important to them as they were to the ancient Greeks or to many other cultures. Let's say one of these dreams led you down to make a decision that led to your death or something. What would your family do? How would they grieve? Well, for one thing, traditionally you weren't buried with very much. You were buried with your personal effects, the things you use on a daily basis. You weren't buried with stores of stuff. Later archaeological sites after European contact showed that sometimes a, a young Mohawk guy would be buried with you know 15,000 wampum beads to show his wealth and power. But before European contact, that doesn't seem to be what burials were about. First, your clan would grieve for you, your entire clan. And those very close to you, they would actually rip their furs to show their grief. Very similar to stories you've seen in other cultures, especially in the Middle East, in uh, biblical accounts and Sumerian and Babylonian, Egyptian, that when when you're grieving, you rip your clothes. You physically create a tear where the tear is inside of you. The Iroquois would also practice this. And then the members of the other clans, they would be responsible with condoling you. So they would have what's called condolence ceremonies, where the one clan would try to comfort the other clan. The one clan would repair the other clan. So the injured clan, they would have to make themselves available, and they would have to express that, hey, we need some help here. And then the other clan would have to provide for them and help get them back on their feet to recover from this great loss. this idea of condolence ceremonies, it ends up on a political level, and we'll see that when wars are being ended that the Iroquois will try to do a condolence ceremony to say I'm sorry for the damage we've caused and are you sorry for the damage that you've caused to us. That's why I'm saving politics for later, because you won't even begin to understand Haudenosaunee politics till you understand them as a people, and I think that's true for any culture. Now there are some accounts of the Haudenosaunee burying their dead, and there's other accounts of them putting the bodies high onto scaffolds to be picked apart and turned into bones, and I can't really fish out what is what, or maybe some tribes did this or different times. Not not really a big deal to know which is which and what is what. It's hard to determine. But they have found burial sites. So at some point, these bodies are going to be buried. Uh, some of the sources I found describe the reburying of bones after many years into like a communal grave with a ceremony and everything else. Kind of just burying everybody with everyone. A big communal grave, a common resting place. You see this in a lot of other cultures too. And it has a... A comforting feeling about it, to be with everyone, and, or to know where everyone is all at once. You're not alone, even in death. From the sources I've studied, heaven is, is kind of a loose concept. The afterlife is not like a happy hunting grounds, necessarily, that you often hear the stereotype of a Native American afterlife. But basically, you would live in a world where just fruit and plants would grow all around you, and you could just pick and eat all the time. They'd never run out. And you wouldn't eat because you were hungry, you would eat just because it tasted good. You never get hungry. Now, we're getting real morbid here, so let's return to the fun and games. Let's say it's the middle of winter and you're a young Iroquois person and you want to participate in some sports. There was a lot of different things that they played. Now imagine you're near the Great Lakes, of course, but you're also near the Finger Lakes. Now the Finger Lakes are real still, and they can freeze, and the water's real clear, and the ice will be real flat. Unlike, you know, Lake Ontario, which has waves like the ocean, or the Hudson and the Mohawk, which are constantly moving and turbulent. You're on one of these Finger Lakes, and the lake is frozen and flat and solid. Something they would do is they would get a spear, they'd sharpen a stick to just be perfect, as perfect as they could possibly get it straight, as little friction as possible, no bark, smooth. And they would have competitions to see how far could I throw this spear on the ice. It's kind of like skipping a stone. But it must be so much more satisfying to just wing a big spear and just send it out on a lake. And it just keeps going and going until you barely see it anymore. So that's one thing they would do. It's kind of like bowling. It's kind of like darts. I don't know what they compare it to. But it sounds really cool. I kind of want to do it. Just take a nice sharp stick and just send it right out there. And just hear it kind of whistle along the ice. Real satisfying. They would also use spears to throw in between moving hoops. Europeans had similar games, so you'd throw the hoop and then you'd try to get the spear through the hoop as it moves or the arrow through the hoop as it moves. And this would be like a natural outgrowth of a child's game for learning how to hunt. And that sounds pretty fun too, but I kind of like that spear on the ice idea. And of course there were lacrosse-like games... And that, that occurs all along the East Coast, really, up into Canada. And down to the Chesapeake, you'll see some version of a lacrosse-like game. And sometimes they're really violent. Sometimes they're more violent than, like, Australian rugby. And then other times, not so much. So it's really hard to generalize. But eventually you get high and lacrosse and things like that. Now, there are no pack animals in this culture. So there's, there's no horses. There's no cows or oxen or mules or anything that can pull or carry a person. And that's true in... All of the Americas, I think the only exception being the the Alpacas, and they can only carry some weight they 're not big enough to carry a person 's weight, so the Iroquois they don 't have any sort of animals to race with, so foot races were really important there'd be messengers between villages. running was a valued skill, and so they would have relays and running races, single people, groups of people. So what are the sides here What are we talking about? Are we talking about teams and some of these things? Yes, absolutely. Within Villages, you'd have clan versus clan, all right? And you guys can just imagine this. It'd be like the Jets and the Giants and the the Patriots and the Buffalo Bills. People had their sides. So clan versus clan, village versus village, tribe versus tribe. And what they would do if it was, you know, over a long distance, they would send somebody out and invite them to have a game. And they would say, all right, we're going to meet in three moons or so, or we're going to meet during this season, and we're going to have it out. We're gonna have, We're going to play a bunch of games. We're going to do lacrosse. We're going to do javelin. We're going to do relays. And then for months, it's recorded, for months some of these athletes would train and they'd get in a really good shape for this one specific event. Then the villages and tribes, they'd all meet together and it'd be this huge thing and people would actually bet on things. They would put, they don't have money at the time necessarily, but they would put possessions on one side of a line and then the other person's possessions on the other side of the line. And of course that would be the bet. If our side wins, then I get what's on your side of the line and then if your side wins, you get what's on my side of the line. So there was gambling going on. There'd be kids everywhere and people, maybe, you know, slightly different cultures and languages all together, and they'd be playing games and competing. This was a, a way better alternative than going to war with one another. So we see a similar thing in ancient Greece, where the Olympic Games kind of arose as a way to keep the peace and have a little fun on the side, and yet still have that competition and a winner and a loser. But sometimes this this would actually break down. It's recorded in 1654... Uh, The Iroquois, that go to war with the Erie. Well, that's not accurate because the Erie are an Iroquoian people. The Haudenosaunee or some portion of it go to war with the Erie. And one of the main causes, it's recorded, is that there was a game and it was somebody was accused of cheating during the game somehow and that ended up spiraling into a war. So not a perfect system, but that's how it is with competition. I mean, if you look at soccer hooligans today, you could very easily see how that could just turn into an outright conflict between two nations. So let's talk about, you know, criminal justice for a little bit, and then we can actually get it into war. So let's let's suppose a crime was committed, a murder perhaps. There were different ways with dealing with that. For one thing, if you committed a murder, you were expected to compensate the clan and the family of the deceased person. Now, in many cases, that meant your life was forfeit. And we'll see this later with captives. Your life was given up to that family, and they could decide what exactly happens to you. In some cases, they could just kill you. In other cases, they could torture you and kill you. They could torture you, kill you, and cannibalize you. There's been reports of that. We just can't deny that. Um, Then there's other ways that things could be done. There, There could be some sort of condolence. You could give something to them. There could be a condolence ceremony. Forgiveness could be given. And this is usually the track that was try to be taken because you belong to a clan if something happens to you it might spiral out into what we learned about before is blood feuds and we want to avoid that at all costs so if a condolence ceremony wasn't appropriate and you dying wasn't appropriate sometimes they would practice shunning very effective method so what would happen is let's say you're in your village this is your family this is your clan these are your people and they decide to shun you you are now cut off from the community. You are a person, you exist, no one has harmed you, but you don't belong here. No one's going to protect you, no one's looking after you, no one's feeding you, and you need to leave, essentially and find a way to make it out on your own. Maybe join another tribe, take your chances on that, but you are shunned. You it is like you're nothing, you're a ghost. No one's there to protect you. Kind of a scary idea. It's that yeah, it's it's pretty scary. But let's say now you're a young man perhaps. And you're going on the warpath. You're going through the woods. The tribe you're going after being one of the Haudenosaunee. And you meet another tribe along the way. The two of you clash head to head. Your side ends up losing. They lose a lot of people though. They're not happy. They take you captive. None of them have particularly seen you commit any crimes necessarily. Kill anyone. Hurt anyone. But they have you now. And a lot of their debt is on the, the hands of your brothers. And maybe on your own. And so they're going to force you back to their village. And just like if you committed a crime, your life is now forfeit to this tribe. And things could go a couple of different ways. One of the first things they might do is march you and anybody else they capture through a gauntlet. So a line of people ready to beat you with various objects. And it could be several people long. it could be dozens of people long. there really are no rules. And they want to see if you're strong enough to make it through the gauntlet. Now, if you can make it all the way through without falling over, without stumbling, maybe you have a chance. There might be another level for you here. You might make it through. You might live another day. If you were a captive, and this was a particularly nasty engagement, it's said that if you fell in the gauntlet, they would try to do away with you as quickly as possible. You'd be dead. Or they would choose to torture you. And that's a whole other thing altogether. So the Iroquois came up with many different ways to torture people. By comparison, though, at this time... During the Spanish Inquisition, the Europeans have found really innovative ways to torture people. But the Iroquois have a couple of their own. You can read descriptions from the enemies of the Iroquois, so take that for what it is, of fingernails being pushed up and ripped off and wooden splints being shoved in between those fingernails and your actual finger of your skin being flayed off you slowly, very slowly, of it being so painful that the captive would actually pass out and then they would stop torturing this person. And then they would re- they would actually revive them with water so they could torture this person longer. Burning them with small little embers continuously. Cutting off appendages and burning them in front of the victim. Really nasty stuff. We'll see a couple of them in uh, some future episodes. And I don't want to dwell on it too much, but it gets really dark. But you know what? It got really dark in every culture at this time. This was a more primitive time everywhere in the world. And no one is exempt from this kind of behavior. It's just a brutal time to be alive, right? We're talking the 17th century. It's bad. And then once you were dead, many times they would, they would ritually cannibalize you. So if you were a captive and you showed bravery and you withstood torture for a long period of time, eventually they would kill you very quickly. And then you as an honorable soldier would have that quick death. And you would be cannibalized. And that power and that courage that you would have would be literally consumed by the tribe. And otherwise, if you were a coward, they would try to torture you for as long as possible and make it really bad for you. It was a source of entertainment. It, it's, this is not a, a very bright subject when we're talking about what's going on at the time. But this is reality. This is what the documents and the sources we have say. Native and European. Let's say, though, that you didn't get tortured you weren't killed you made it through the gauntlet what's going to happen to you is that a family is going to take you on usually it's going to be the family or the clan of somebody who died during the engagement so somebody from the bear clan died and he was of this particular family you would be the substitute for that person and your life would be forfeit to that family they could decide what to do with you. If they decided the grief I have over my dead loved one is just not going to be made up by this person and I feel angry, I want to kill this person. That was their right to do so. Likewise, they could say, there's a hole in my heart. This person seems nice. He's learning our language. He's getting along. He's doing good things. He seems like a good person. We're going to adopt that person. Now, that's the way you want to go. That's where the, that's the camp you want to end up in. So as a captive, you would go through a, a period of like rushing a fraternity Right? You would be in this time when who knows which way it could go. They could decide at any minute to do away with me, but at the same time, i got to prove my worth. So the captives would do the hardest work, and they're going to be at the bottom of the society until they can prove themselves and prove that they can be part of the community. So they're going to be below the children. They're going to be below, like I mentioned, the effeminate men, because they, at least they had a second class standing. These people would be third class, fourth class. They'd be down there until they can prove they're part of the community, until the community brings them in and says, you're one of us. And if you could prove yourself, you would be welcome into the clan eventually. You could marry, you could have children. Your children would be just anybody else in the tribe, anybody else in the village. So we're going to see this in Haudenosaunee history, that they take on a lot of refugees. They take on a lot of war captives. And there's going to be certain authors and sources and people who lived during the time who question even going into certain villages. Like, I don't know whether or not I saw a village full of Mohawk people or just a village that were absorbed by the Mohawk people. The line between who is who is going to be blurred. And that's because the Haudenosaunee community, it's not genes, it's not genetics, it's culture, it's tradition. So if you come and you join our community and we welcome you and you proved yourself, you're one of us now. And your children are one of us. The distinctions, these, these ideas of like ethnicity disappear you just are one of us it's a really comforting feeling to be in that position so with the torturing and the killing that is so popular in a lot of sources because it's graphic and you know people like that kind of stuff it's really not on the scale that you would see in places like europe uh horatio hale he's an author of the uh rights of the iroquois i believe is the name of the book he wrote about 120 years ago or so i believe he was cherokee or half cherokee he has a great quote here oh where is it here it is great quote here the innate barbarism of the Aryan, breaking through his thin varnish of civilization, was found to transcend the utmost barbarism of the Indian. What that means is basically, as bad as some of these descriptions are, the stuff going on during like, the Spanish Inquisition, well those aren't Aryans, but up in England perhaps, are way more brutal. Think, consider the ending of Braveheart, for instance. <laughs> And Horatio Hale also argues that the scale was way smaller. If you look at European wars and the Inquisition, like I said before, and all these other sort of religiously based arguments that they had arguments, full scale, decades long wars, the scale of European torture and captivity and all these other horrible things were way larger than what's going on in North America. So as brutal as Native American life could have been at this time, it was brutal everywhere, like I said before. And it is recorded that the Iroquois sometime adopted an entire tribe or the remnant of a tribe who have suffered some sort of catastrophe. It's happened many times. The Haudenosaunee have done it more. There, There have been more tribes absorbed in the Haudenosaunee than there are the original tribes, the five, and even the Tuscarora, the six. If you count all the tribal people who have come and joined the Haudenosaunee, especially in the 17th and 18th century, it is far more than the original five tribes, even with the additional six Tuscarora. It's really amazing how much they came to accept people and bring them into their own lifestyle. And so in our next episode, we are going to look at the politics of the Haudenosaunee. But right before the Europeans began contact with them, what was going on? And the episode is going to leave off on an ominous note. So by the end of the episode, we'll see Samuel D. Champlain poke his head into this story. We're going to see the Europeans start to show up and trading with all the groups other than the Iroquois. And it's going to look like the beginning of the end for them. But the Haudenosaunee have a lot in store. They have a lot to show off for themselves. And the story's going to very quickly turn around when the Dutch show up right around the Albany area. And then from there on, there's going to be a lot of struggles. But the Iroquois nation will be on the rise. Thank you for watching this show. I'm Eric Giannis. This was the Other States of America History Podcast.